A lot of our spiritual lives aren't about getting answers that are verbally spoken answers. They're about getting impressions that reshape how we think or how we feel, where we're directing our lives. And these things only truly become fully distilled as answers over time. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in good faith today with Dr. Matthew Wickman, who is on faculty here at Brigham Young University. Thanks for being with me today. It's a pleasure, Steve. Thank you. Dr. Wickman received his BA in English from BYU in 1992, also a master's from NYU, a PhD from UCLA, both in English. And he's written over two dozen articles and book chapters and two books to date. That's changing now. Yeah. And we have a new release called Life to the Whole Being, the Spiritual Memoir of a Literature Professor, which you can find on Amazon and other book outlets. I really loved, and the reason we're even having this is on Twitter, you posted this, which I saved as a screenshot because it really captured my attention. You said, in my class on literature and spiritual experience, we spend a lot of time talking and reading about divine silence. First of all, the whole idea of talking about silence is a different subject, but <laughs> yes. the students take to it powerfully. It speaks so vividly to their experience. Reconciling those poles is something we discuss a lot. Yeah. What is it about divine silence, just that phrase that gets people hooked or that they are relating to? Well, in this class, these are BYU students uh, who have religious backgrounds and in most cases active religious lives. And, you know, our religious culture is one that preaches that people can have a connectedness with God, a connection to God, that one can pray to God to express one's thoughts and feelings, but also that God can respond in various ways through the Holy Spirit. And so encountering, though, God's silence, answers that don't come, there's a built-in inherent frustration uh, attached to that idea. Tell me about it. Well, yeah, right, yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, most of us are very familiar with it. And actually, it's a very important part of spiritual maturity. But the students that I teach then are at a stage in life where they're, they have rich spiritual lives, but they're also becoming increasingly accustomed to silence in ways that means they answers aren't always forthcoming or they're deferred or they encounter complex situations they can't quite negotiate. And, and so talking about divine silence or God's presence and reality on the one hand, but his withholding of answers from us on the other is a subject that they're very ready to discuss in their early and mid-20s, I find. Yeah. An authority in my church at one time said, if you're not getting an answer, rejoice. God trusts you. Yeah. And I thought, well, yeah, but I'd rather have him say, I trust you than <laughs> just, just assume that. Right. And then one more, just a little personal note. I remember being in a meeting where someone in my congregation, this really great lady, I really just loved her, but she stood up and she said, well, I was praying about this particular thing. And she said, you know, it was one of those times when you get the answer before you even get back up on your feet. I resisted the impulse to grab her by the neck and say, no, what on earth are you talking about? Because I have not had that experience. Right. I've had other experiences. But that whole idea that silence means God's not even there, or is this an opportunity for faith, 
I'm sure this comes up in your class. It does a lot. Yeah. In fact, look, when I began teaching this, I taught this most recently in the winter semester of 2022, so just a few months ago. And, you know, we talk about it in conjunction with a few literary texts that we read and a few scholarly pieces about, you know, scholarship on spirituality we discuss. But when we got to it, the students seemed so riveted by the subject that we actually stayed with it longer. And it became a kind of an ongoing motif in the class. They were really, really wanting to discuss these complexities of spiritual life where God is present, but not necessarily forthcoming with what we desire when we pray. Uh, That's and, described beautifully, present, but not necessarily forthcoming. Right. And, and they were really ready for this. And of course, they're just wonderful. They're very sophisticated in how they understand all this. So it was really enriching to teach it. You said one time in a Desert News article about a class on literature and spirituality Quote, it's the richest intellectual and, yes, spiritual experience I've ever had in the classroom. It's opened new horizons to me as a scholar and helped me better understand how spirituality works. Can you comment on, on that, something that you have learned or an insight you gained? Yeah, sure. I, the class was actually born from an invitation I received a few years ago from my department to teach a senior seminar on any subject I wanted. And I thought, okay, great. I've got an old research project, literature and mathematics. I'll teach that. And the students, of course, would be very grateful I didn't do that. Uh, you know. Uh, but then I thought, no, I don't want to teach that. It's old. I've done that. been there, done that. How about this new project? I had something new going on. And I thought, yeah, I could teach that. And I thought, no, I don't want to do that. And then I thought, well, what do I want to do? And I suddenly faced this personal crisis of, well, what do, I, what do I want to teach? And I asked myself a new question, which was, well, instead of thinking about what I'm currently working on or what's trendy in my field, what do I care about? What matters to me? And the answer was, well, in life, I mean, my relationship with God matters to me. My spiritual life matters. Could you build a class around literature and the spiritual life? Well, if so, what would it even look like? And this was a you know, crisis you know, for me because, like, well, how would I teach this? So I put together a proposal and tried to get this sort of worked up uh, into a class that, and I had a year to prepare for it. What I found, not getting to your question directly, is in getting into the subject, I found I had a lot to read on scholarship on spirituality. There's wonderful things written about how a spiritual experience acts on parts of the brain. One of the things I've learned about, for example, is I've done studies about this, that people undergoing spiritual experience will find that the parts of the brain that did both to imagination and memory both open up and kind of inform each other more deeply. We think more profoundly cognitively and we feel more deeply emotionally. So it's actually happening when one's having a spiritual experience. It's kind of the mind on hyperdrive, hmm. which was a new thing to me. I mean, I've, it stands to reason if you've had spiritual experiences. It's just that learning things like that were new to me, learning about the rich Christian tradition outside my own faith and the depth of spiritual experiences across uh, other religions, that was new to me. Finding out where it exists in literary texts that I've known and loved for a long time, that was new to me. And then having a chance to talk about it with some of the most amazing students on earth was also very rich. I want to dive into some of this literature that you kindly shared with me, a few excerpts of types of things you might study. I do want to ask one question about Teaching at a religious school, is there some taboo about suggesting that you don't know if God is speaking to you or if you, for instance, are sure God is even there 
in a class at a religious university. It's not a, a religion class, but right. that's you can't really grade people's belief. But do you find any hesitancy or are people just happy to dive into this? The students I've encountered have been happy to dive into it because they experience this in their own circumstances. I had a student come to me, for example, last semester, halfway through the semester, and she was saying, you know, I like the class, fine, it's great, but I find I'm not having spiritual experiences myself. I asked the students to keep a journal of their spiritual experiences. They just record it for themselves. We got talking about how to notice these things. And in her case, I think she just felt overwhelmed from life's complexities. I mean, mm-hmm. she, you know, graduating, where's she going to work when she graduates? Recently married, that introduces all kinds of new life complications. And it's good, but it's not easy. And it just kind of felt beset with life's just pressures. So I said, okay, well, why don't you, instead of trying to sort of focus on current experiences, why don't you focus on experiences you've had in the past? Go back and write about those. What were they like? How did the Spirit communicate with you? What was the ordering and sequencing of of how it happened? What did you feel? What did you think? What followed from all of it? And she began taking careful note of past experiences. And once she did that, it opened floodgates for new experiences. Mm. I find that most students are very happy to talk about a spiritual life that's rich, but also a spiritual life that is uh, more complicated because they experience these things already. And the class doesn't purport to say there's no God out there. The the class purports to say, rather, there is a God, but God's mind is vast and large and much larger than ours. Therefore, by definition, our attempts to access the mind of God are going to be nuanced and learned. And um, we need to get better at this. Let's start. Well, you've introduced me to a new poet by sharing some of the material. Mm -hmm. Can you give me in a sentence or two who R.S. Thomas was? Brilliant Welsh poet of the 20th century. He died in the year 2000. He was once shortlisted for the Nobel Prize in Literature. He did not win it. But if you are shortlisted, you're pretty good. And so he was a remarkable poet. He's also a priest. And he writes in in just beautiful ways about... A spiritual life, especially about the different kinds of silences that we encounter as we try to access the divine. He seems to do it in a very solid, tangible way almost. Would you read In a Country Church? And I have a few questions I'd love to, to ask about that. You bet. In a Country Church. To one kneeling down, no word came, only the wind's song saddening the lips of the grave saints rigid in glass or the dry whisper of unseen wings bats not angels in the high roof was he balked by silence he kneeled long and saw love in a dark crown of thorns blazing and a winter tree golden with fruit of a man's body so every sentence in there has an image or two That goes in my mind. The first one that I think about when he's talking about uh, the wind song as grave saints rigid in glass is that this seems almost like a museum of dead things. That it's, there's nothing alive in that. Like, uh, is this a thing from the past? Is this even applicable? Yeah. And then when it talks about seeing love in the dark crown of thorns and a winter tree golden with the fruit of a man's body, Here's what I wrote. The work is in the person, not anything handed to them. Mm. Like, here's this person. The line that you could skip over is he kneeled long. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. (laughs) And sometimes we give up. So this person here 
is not knowing in the traditional sense we say we know something, like I know that apple is red. It's faith, but because it's in silence, not in response to God saying, I'm here, Faith in what? Faith in hope? Faith in in what? That's great, yeah. You're right about the setup to the poem. It's a, it's a poem in two brief stanzas. And that first stanza where he's kneeling and no word is coming. There are bats, not angels, the whisper, you know, of, yeah. dry, of unseen wings. Uh, that is kind of a haunting image, right? Mm-hmm. In a sense, you get a sense that the church is large, it's cold, it's empty, and there's really nothing divine about it. Lots of death, as you say. Then that second stanza, it asks that question, was he balked by silence? And it never really answers that question. It just says, he kneeled long and saw love in a dark crown of thorns. You get the sense he's gazing up and seeing the altar mm-hmm. and the crucifix right there at the altar. And the answer, therefore, takes a couple different forms as I interpret it. And there are lots of ways to interpret it, but the way I interpret it. One way would be to say, you know, he kneeled long in this cold church and did receive an answer, some some sense that God was present, some vision of God there in the church came to him. That's one way to interpret it. The other is to interpret the saying, well, he kneeled long and never really received a full answer to some question he was asking that we don't know even what that question was. But he did have a sense that he wasn't alone mm-hmm. in, in being in that church, that Christ was there with him in that place, and that Christ's presence, Christ's companionship, even whether or not there are the answers that he wanted, was tantamount to a reassurance that God is there, even if the answers that he sought in kneeling long did not come to him. Yeah, that he sees love, whether that is his own work he's doing or whether by kneeling long and being open, he comes or is given a realization. Sometimes we don't know where our thoughts come from. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And learning how to discern the spirit is a really important part of, I think, a, a spiritual journey, a spiritual life. It's one reason why in the class I teach, I like to encourage the students to keep a spiritual journal. It's not because they're going to have an experience that's the one they'll remember all their lives. There's something about the repetitive nature of keeping it that makes you more aware of spiritual impressions as they happen. And mm. then over time, you begin to notice patterns about how the spirit works with you. And once you notice the patterns, then you become more discerning of the presence of God in your own life. So that's the value of that. So so we don't always know where these impressions come from, you're right, but we can become more practiced and more discerning so that we can begin to recognize the difference. I love what you said a while ago about kind of starting from the supposition that God is vast. Yeah. And often what we hope for as answers seem more like we called our uncle and said, do I sign up for the army or not? And the <laughs> uncle says, well, of course, because this or we're expecting it. When we're actually speaking to something bigger than what we just saw with the James Webb Space Telescope, yeah, which was right. mind-blowing Absolutely. and that, that God is in that and through that, <laughs> how would we get an answer that really makes sense immediately from our, our human perspective? Oh, that's right. I find a lot of times the way answers come to me actually, Steve, often from my own, in my own case – is that God will bring my attention to something and then just be silent. And you get the sense that God's not saying, look at this and now here's what it means. I'll give mm. you five paragraphs. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, I want you to look at this. This is big. It's vast. It's amazing. It's profound. And it could be something like these images in the James Webb telescope, or it could just be a person that I may have looked past. It could be whether it's in, in my congregation, family, at work, student, whatever. 
I feel something's brought to mind and then God falls silent so that I know to attend to this thing and think about it more carefully. So that silence becomes, in my experience, a mode by which God communicates with us. It's a way of directing our attention to something without giving us the impression it'd be reduced to two sentences. So it's not just that we say, I ask, but I don't think I'm receiving. It's like if we learn to listen, we might detect something in that silent moment because of our silence. That's perfect. Yeah, that's right. You know, our King James Bible has a phrase that is translated still small voice, mm-hmm. right? It's it's the, how the Holy Ghost speaks to us. We say this still small voice, it's kind of quiet. But the focus there is on what's being spoken. Some other biblical translations have that in English, not as still small voice, but as thin silence. Wow. And what I love about that, right? Is, is <laughs> it's it, nothing to grab onto there. No, it's not. It's silence, but it's a thin silence. Right behind it, you detect the presence of God. So the focus in that translation is not on what's spoken, still small voice, but rather on what is momentarily withheld, this thin silence behind which God resides or dwells. And I find that to be a great way to think about how many an answer to prayer comes, not as words given, but as a sense of God's presence, even in things we can't quite grasp yet in the moment. One of just a couple most powerful experiences that I have had, there were no words. It was, I'm leaving out all the details, but uh, my son was lost in the wilderness on a scout camp, and I did not know he was lost. And I got lost in the very same place, even though we were all together in a big group, and found him. Wow. And I didn't get words. But I suddenly just knew things, and one of them was I was in this. The whole time you were wondering where you were. You thought you were lost. I was leading you to him. Now, why couldn't he have said, turn left here and go find your son? You don't know it, but he's lost. Nothing happened. (laughs) But I came upon him in a difficult situation I had to help him out of. We walked out of there like nothing had happened. And I have no words. I just had knowledge that I had brushed up against God in this. That's an amazing experience. It was. I had to just write it down because I thought, I'm going to forget this or what I felt if I don't. That's incredible. And you think about the wisdom of God in these things, right? If God had said, Steve, your son is lost, what would sit in for me if I heard something like that would be panic? Yeah, yeah. And and, and you're not thinking as clearly about where you are. You start running. you, You get overwhelmed with anxiety. You miss small, subtle cues. I had an experience years ago. I was, I was at a real life juncture career-wise and didn't quite know the next step to take. And someone at church gave a, a talk on patriarchal blessings. These are blessings one receives once in one's life, usually mm-hmm. as you know, teens or early 20s, typically, that can be later too. And, and they, they have counsel there. It's kind of wise, divine counsel tailored to each individual person. Mm. And I thought, you know, I had not read my blessing in many years. I got home from church and I read this. We were living in Scotland at the time. And I just felt compelled to go take a long walk down by the shore of the North Sea. So I, I, this was a high summer and the light just stays in the air forever in Scotland that time of year. And I was walking down the shore and thinking about how large things in life had happened. And I thought about how, how frequently I pray for inspiration, whether it's work-related, family-related, church-related. I, I, I pray for it and I feel like I get spiritual impressions and I try to be attentive to them. But what really came to me was that when really large things happen in my life, relationship that led to my marriage, 
uh, big career decisions, big graduate school decisions. There was no impression about where I should go. There was mm. no word given. It's like a door opened, and I was expected to walk through it. And once I got through it— In faith. Yeah, in faith. Then I'd find out more from there. But that when, when, when God really had to give me important things, he didn't trust me to hear him properly. <laughs> you know, It had to be shown a different way. I, I find your story reminiscent of that for me and really profound in your case. Will you read another poem from R.S. Thomas, uh, this one, uh, Kneeling? Love to. I love this poem. Kneeling. Moments of great calm, kneeling before an altar of wood in a stone church in summer, waiting for the God to speak, the air a staircase for silence, the sun's light ringing me as though I acted a great role, and the audience's still all that close throng of spirits waiting as I for the message. Prompt me, God, but not yet. When I speak, though it be you who speak through me, something is lost. The meaning is in the waiting. That last line, or that last stanza, is it that as soon as I put words to it, it's less than it was. It can't ever be what I actually received. Yeah, that's right. I, I find this, this is a beautiful poem. You know, Thomas sometimes writes about the anguish of divine silence. In this case here, though, it's about almost the luxury of divine silence prior to receiving some word of inspiration. There is a full expectation that such inspiration is going to be coming. This, I imagine this being given to a minister, like Thomas himself was yeah. a minister, right? Waiting in a church before he goes out to give a sermon. I you had know. wondered why all of these poems, there's a lot of hanging out in churches going on. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. You know, In this case here, there's a confidence that he'll have the inspiration that he needs when it's, the, but, 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 but he wants to wait in that moment before the inspiration comes. Because when he translates that inspiration into his own speech, something will be lost. The meaning, the density, the richness of the spiritual experience is in the waiting and the anticipation for the word that's not quite there yet. It's as though that thin silence, you sense God present, but God has not yet spoken. And, 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 and when God does speak through you, You'll try to capture the best you can, but you're an imperfect translator. Yeah. So in the moment before God speaks, it's the moment of possibility. So much might be said that would be so great. Alas, I won't quite capture it just right. So Two thoughts. One is the presence can be an answer, but you have to think, what does this mean? What was happening when this happened? What was I thinking? What, what am I considering? What were other people saying? I can think of a moment like that, a simple thing at work where someone said, what if you do this? And I was about to say, I don't know if we have time. There was no answer saying yes, but I just felt this presence of something. I thought, I have to step forward in faith and say yes, because I don't know. I may be totally wrong, but how do I find out unless I venture a little bit? Good. Yeah, it's great. And this line when he says in summer, waiting for the God to speak. Do we limit ourselves because we have expectations of, and it will be in such and such a way? 
Oh, absolutely right. I think no question about it. There's a, a very well-known theologian Catholic named Thomas Merton. Yes. Uh, he writes something really wonderful. Uh, he says this. He says, in the silence of this night of faith, this moment of waiting when nothing is spoken yet, right, we return to the simplicity and sincerity of heart. We learn recollection, which consists in listening for God's will in direct and simple attention to reality. Prayer, then, means yearning for the simple presence of God, for a personal understanding of his word, for knowledge of his will, and for capacity to hear and obey him. It is thus something much more than uttering petitions for good things. It's not about please, please give me, please, please, or asking God to say, okay, here's the answer, here you get. There's something profound about having to wait for God to speak. You know, a lot of times we, I think we have a really naive sense about how we look for answers from God. We live in a society that's very, very fast. It's a culture of information. This is my next question. Okay. Have we lost the ability to wait upon anything? Excellent. Right. Yes. Yeah. Two things happen. I think we are less patient because of, I mean, I know that when for me, internet goes down for five minutes, I throw a fit. Right? You know, I want, I want access right now yeah. to the thing I needed. Well, right? just yesterday I said to my wife, this is going to take Amazon two days. Like, <laughs> right. It's supposed to be tomorrow. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, so we don't wait as well. But we also tend to receive things as information bites. You know, a lot of our spiritual lives aren't about getting answers that are verbally spoken answers. They're about getting impressions that reshape how we think or how we feel where we're directing our lives. And these things only truly become fully distilled as answers over time. So there's not even a sentence God could utter in that moment that would be adequate to the answer he wants to give. And by making, by reducing God only to a speaker of sentences and a prayer, we really limit the richness of spiritual life. Mm. We can read in scripture, and this could be in, I think, in any tradition, where there will be a moment where Someone, Gideon, for instance, Old Testament. So the Lord speaks to him in some way that he knows means you're going to lead my people to freedom. And he says, who, me? You know, I'm (laughs) right. And then the Lord says, yes, you. And he says, well, I kind of like the sign. So he leaves out the fleece, you know, make the fleece dewy and leave the ground dry. It works out the next day. Well, just maybe one more time. Now make the (laughs) the ground dewy in whichever order. And finally, he starts to get it. But many of the stories we read are recorded specifically because there was an answer, or at least I don't know if God said, Gideon, you're the man, or if there was a feeling that Gideon had and he put it into the words, those words. So do we sometimes, by reading in our tradition, accounts only of what seem to be very clear answers, miss out on the previous 30 years of Gideon's life and what led him to that? Do we miss out on all the in-between times? That's a very insightful, I think, observation of yours, Steve. I think that's right. You know, I write in the book that you mentioned at the outset of the interview, um, Life to the Whole Being. I write about the experience coming off my mission. Yes. And feeling as though— This was chapter five. Yeah, that's right. Of campfires and canyon breezes. Yeah, and and feeling as though I needed 
May I read a, a line of yours? Would you please? To yeah, introduce something it. I may read, but you, I want you to hear you read it more than I want to hear well, myself well, read. That's just sure. this one line, and then you can continue. Yeah. Because this, this struck me enough that I stopped, underlined, and read it again and thought. You say, partway into the introduction of this, my unformulated, unrealized life path felt unconscious and almost compulsive. Like, why am I doing what I'm doing? A raw expression of spiritual needs I struggled and often failed to understand. Yeah. And then you go from there. Yeah, that's right. And on that note, you know, I found myself wanting what I was confronted with. This happened to me as a missionary. So a lot like my students, you know, you hit a certain stage in life and you, you have a rich spiritual life. I believe in God's kindness. Above all things to me, God has manifested himself as a very deeply kind being. But when you confront some of life's complications, you know, uh, things that don't work out the way you want to or you kind of other people's lives and the suffering that they go through, or you have questions that seem unanswered, suddenly you start to realize that God is kind, but there's an awful lot I'm not getting. And to me, that was a kind of a coming of age. So I had, I wrote, I write this in the, in that same chapter there, that I had a deep conviction of the kindness of God, the goodness of God, but felt impressed that I also needed to become more comfortable with the greatness of God, the vastness of God. I'd grown accustomed to approaching God, seeking answers. Now I needed to attend to the abiding mystery, the darkened corners, in the answers I received. I loved the light of the gospel, but I needed to learn how to dwell in divine shadow. And by divine shadow, what I mean is these are parts of our experience that help us better appreciate who God is, but that don't reduce down to our needs of God. They're parts of God's being we don't fully grasp it yet that aren't in the light for us at this stage of our development. And that's what I felt I needed to learn how to learn how to do better so that I could accommodate life's complexities without losing my faith, without feeling as though there were things I was never going to have answers to or that God wasn't there when I prayed. It's, no, God is there. The problem isn't God's ability to speak. It's my capacity to understand and listen. I've got to deepen those things. Mm. You know, I always am excited when I'm going to interview an author because I know they have had to spend the time to crystallize their thinking mm -hmm. and they know what they think about something, at least, or how they thought at some particular moment. Even if language is just a poor approximation of the actual experience, I have a question for you, but to lead into it, I'd love to read at least part of this poem, Emerging. Not as in the old days, I pray, God. My life is not what it was. Yours, too, accepts the presence of the machine. Once I would have asked healing. I go now to be doctored, to drink sinlessly of the blood of my brother, to lend my flesh as manuscript of the great poem of the scalpel. I would have knelt long, wrestling with you, wearing you down, Hear my prayer, Lord, hear my prayer. As though you were deaf, myriads of mortals have kept up their shrill cry, explaining your silence by their unfitness. It begins to appear this is not what prayer is about. It is the annihilation of difference, the consciousness of myself in you, of you in me, the emerging from the adolescence of nature into the adult geometry of the mind. I begin to recognize you anew, God of form and number. There are questions we are the solution to, 
others whose echoes we must expand to contain. Circular as our way is, it leads not back to that snake-haunted garden, but onward to the tall city of glass that is the laboratory of the spirit. Thank you. It's a beautiful poem, isn't it? Yeah. So that first line points us in a direction, not as in the old days, I pray. Stuff's happened. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. And then the beginning of that second stanza is what I wanted to sort of zero in on. It begins to appear. I, I'm yeah. starting to get a glimpse. Yeah. It begins to appear this is not what prayer is about. I think when he says, the consciousness of myself in you and you in me. So I can't help but thinking of Jesus saying the kingdom of God is within you. Mm. And that often those answers or our our choices become better or more in tune spiritually when when we do feel like there is sort of this inner authority because I think that is what Jesus was talking about. Hmm. It's our connection or, or a piece of God within us. I don't know what words to use. Yeah, or what deepens in us as a function of our experiences over time. We learned yeah. how to accommodate, right, broader spiritual realities. So I am pretty sure that you still upon occasion say, Lord, please bless my child, that oh, X, yeah. X. Oh, yeah. But how has that changed how you ap- approach any aspect of prayer That's because great. of your consideration of these things? Thank you for asking that question. Yeah, I, As I have gone through my own life challenges and as my children now have gone through life challenges, I found myself asking often in prayer, how do I pray for my child? So my prayer is about how to pray. And I found my own practice. And of why not? Yeah, exactly, right? Now, in, in, there are lots of scriptural examples of people praying to know how to pray, and they pray and are led to a place where a large revelation unfolds, right? I feel like I've had to learn how to ask the right question of the Lord in prayer, not because the Lord needs that from me to know how to bless, but so that I know what to look for, for signs of God's presence in my children's lives. I've also found that in recent years, I've prayed often and I've sought the Spirit. Once I feel the Spirit's presence, I often will sit without asking anything. I'm listening, but I'm not expecting speech or impressions, or rather impressions, yes, but often silent impressions. And I just sit in that place of spiritual fullness because I find that in my own case, and in many cases, God is the great untangler of knots. And by sitting in that kind of space, I feel like it works through some of the knots in my own soul. And it makes me more able then to pray in the right way, to ask the right questions, to hear the right things, even if those things are not what I'm hoping to hear. It makes me more receptive. And by that function, by as a result of that, it makes me more open to the wonderful, wondrous ways God manifests himself in my life and the lives of others. So I've had the experience of having asked certain things fairly regularly for a period of years and not seeing any apparent direction or answers. And so I stopped praying about them. And at first I thought, did I give up? Because I, I don't really like giving up. And then I thought, no, I think, I think I realized that he knows what I think. He knows what I need to know. And I just don't need to keep going. I am just going to leave this in his hands. And I don't think it's giving up. I think it's trusting either when the time is right or I may not even be asking the right question. Yeah, I love that. I think that's wise, Steve. I do. One of Thomas's poems titled The Answer 
concludes with uh, an image from John chapter 20 in the New Testament of uh, Peter and John running back to the, to the grave, finding the stone rolled away, and they enter the grave and they find Christ absent. But that absence was actually the great answer to you know, the question of who Christ was. Christ was absent because resurrected. Christ was absent because he was the son of God. God lived, therefore God was absent, <laughs> which, is, which is an amazing thing to think. And I think a lot of the most complex questions that we ask of God ultimately find answers like that. We pray for a long time. We never have a concrete sentence spoken. We might not see things occur to us in a way that it's clear that God's manifest himself and answered something. But over time, as we think about what has changed and developed in us or in things external to us, we see God's presence there and say, wow, something about this is different. Something has changed. I never noticed it when it came. And God's still not here saying, hey, Steve, look what happened. But something is different. God is not there, but God is risen. And the answer has actually happened almost without our noticing it. I can see why students like this class. I love Th- this the class. conversation just brings me alive. I love this and I'd love to continue for another hour. I wish we had it. Yeah. Maybe in the future. Maybe in the future. Can you pinpoint moments whether you're comfortable sharing them or not? Are there moments or thoughts or reasons why if you had to say I believe in God because. Hmm. Yeah, you bet. Um let me borrow here from one more writer, sure. and I'm going to kind of draft off of what she writes. Simone Weil, um, yeah. uh, 20th century thinker, uh, sort of mystic philosopher. She writes, this is, these are her words, the infinity of the ordinary expanses of perception. So infinity means we might perceive anything at all out there, right? Is replaced by an infinity of the second or sometimes the third degree. At the same time, filling every part of this infinity of infinity, there is silence a silence which is not the absence of sound, but which is the object of a positive sensation, more positive than that of sound. I believe in God because I sense God's presence both in forms that have been very concrete and tangible to me, forms of virtual speech, but also because of God's presence I've learned to recognize in times when I had no answer. Hmm. when there was a very palpably thin silence in my life. Um, and that presence to me has always been one I associate with the greatest kindness and depth and richness. The poet Christian Wyman writes, kind of inverts a kind of a, a, an aphorism. He says, nobody believes in God without first perceiving God. And his point is that We tend to believe and invest our faith in things that we perceive to be real and perceive to be there. For me, God is a perceptible, real being. And my perception of that has always what's given me uh, my richest life experiences, the most meaningful ones. And that's why I'm a believer in God. Dr. Matthew Wickman is a professor of English literature here at Brigham Young University. His brand new book is Life to the Whole Being, the Spiritual Memoir of a Literature Professor. I am so happy that you came in today. Thank you for making time. It's been a delight, Steve. Thank you. That's our time for today. Thank you to Dr. Matthew Wickman for sharing his studies, his stories, and his faith. 
Find Dr. Wickman's book, Life to the Whole Being, a spiritual memoir of a literature professor at Amazon and other book outlets. Thanks to Peter Ellison and Austin Ball for engineering. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you enjoy the show, be sure and leave a five-star comment or review where you get your podcasts. That helps spread the word. Our Twitter feed is at InGoodFaithBYU. InGoodFaith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon, right here, In Good Faith.